right, good morning, Pennington Park. We are so excited that you've chosen to worship with us this morning on a holiday weekend, no no less. Uh, If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Sam Drew, like it says on the screen, and I am the new associate pastor of students here. Uh, And this week, I get the privilege of continuing our walk through the book of Genesis. And whether this is your first Sunday with us or even walking alongside with us through the, in the entire series, I want to take a minute and pause before we get started to refresh our memory so we can better understand where we've been, so we can also see where we're going to go today. And so the whole point of this sermon series, the reason that we've dedicated the summer to it, the thesis statement, if you will, is this, that Genesis lays the foundation for how we're supposed to read and understand the rest of the Bible. The Genesis, it provides patterns and story arcs that inform the way that we look at the entirety of Scripture, that if we understand Genesis, we can understand the Bible a whole lot better. So a few weeks ago when we started, Joel gave this great analogy. It stuck with me. It's really helpful, even as I've prepared this week, that the book of Genesis is kind of like a family quilt, right? Family quilt, it looks intricate, and it is, but it's usually made up of patterns that repeat and repeat and inverse and illuminate one another to create this giant picture or tapestry. And that's what Genesis does. That's what Genesis does. It has a pattern that it says over and over again. And if we understand that pattern, then we understand Genesis and we understand the rest of the Bible. So what is the pattern, you ask? I'm glad you did. We're going to look at it today. And the pattern that we've been looking at is this. It's creation, that everything is beautiful and wonderful, the creation. And there's a test, which our characters inevitably fail and fall, bring curse and judgment on themselves. But God provides a way of redemption. So we see creation, we see a test, we see fall, and then we see redemption. So we're going to look at each of these pieces really quick so we can understand it before we dive in. So the first, creation. Everything is good and wonderful. Think Adam and Eve in the garden before they've fallen. And Adam and Eve are kind of the the ideal of this pattern, the archetype, if you will. So they're in creation. Everything is great, but you know what happens next. They're confronted with a test to either eat or not eat the fruit of the tree, to trust God or not trust God. And they choose to not trust God, to not obey. And so they fail. And Adam and Eve's failure It brings curse and sin and brokenness to themselves and to the world around them. But just when all looks lost, just as they're being pushed out of the garden, as God is pronouncing curses on them and the ground, God also provides a way forward, a way of redemption. In Genesis 3, it's the ultimate picture of this. God promises that he's going to send somebody Sometime who's somehow going to reverse the curse, who's going to fix the brokenness, and who's going to crush the head of the snake and defeat death and defeat sin. It doesn't say, doesn't say who. It doesn't really say how. It says, hey, one day that character is coming. And we see this in other stories too, that, that we see that God's people again and again face these tests and then they fail. But even as they fail, God remains faithful. God remains faithful. So Genesis explores that pattern over and over again. We looked at Noah. Think of Noah. He, he weathers this flood of judgment and decreation. He comes out of the ark and things are beautiful. There's a rainbow. He plants a garden. He worships God. You're supposed to think Garden of Eden, creation. This is it. This is it. But inevitably, just a few verses later, Noah fails too, leading to curse and to pain. You see this pattern of creation fall and God promising redemption again and again. This pattern is not just confined to Genesis. It actually sets the tone and direction for the rest of the Bible, the entire Bible, from the minor prophets to the epistles to the gospels. They all pick up on this theme. 
to see that something in our world is broken. Maybe everything in our world is broken and that someone, someone needs to step up and to save us. But who is that going to be? That's where they all end is who is going to be the one, the promised one who's going to come and fulfill Genesis 3 and crush the head of the snake. And these patterns, they cycle again and again. And it's easy for you and I, because we have the Old Testament. We know how the story ends. We know that it's Jesus, and it is Jesus. But it's easy for us to, to sort of miss the emotional pull of what it's trying to do here. Or when you read these stories, you're supposed to kind of think, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. Maybe he's going to be the one who weathers the test, who makes all things new. So you see Abraham comes on the scene, and you're like, maybe it's Abraham. You see Noah comes on the scene, maybe it's Noah. You're supposed to think, that maybe this is it, and then inevitably you're let down again and again and again. I'm not sure how many of y'all in here are sports fans, uh, but I'm a pretty big baseball guy. And if you know a little about me, I grew up outside of Baltimore, Maryland. So from the moment I was born, more or less, I was in love with the Baltimore Orioles. And if you know about baseball, you know that the Orioles are terrible, terrible. And, and not like oh, they were okay. We're talking like bottom of the league, worst team in baseball every single year type of bad. And, but every year, every year the snow melts and the birds start singing and I'm starting to feel optimistic. And I'm like, this is the year. This is the year. They're calling up that one guy. They're looking really good in spring training. This is the year the O's are gonna be good. So I get excited and every year it is not. It is not. It has never been the year since I've been alive and you know, we'll just see how it goes. Sometimes they start out really hot and get our hopes up and they crash and burn. Sometimes they are just horrible from the beginning. And so, you know, they just put it out of our misery and we can ignore them. But either way, they don't go well. And side note, they're actually doing pretty good this year. Uh, but you and I are astute readers of patterns like we've learned in Genesis. And so we know how the story will end, which is they're going to let us down again. So I'm sorry to tell you, they lost one nothing yesterday even. What can you do? Uh, but Genesis, it's more or less the same thing. It's more or less that feeling. You have these characters that rise up, like Adam, like Noah, like Abraham, and you start to kind of fall in love with them. You start to think, maybe they're the one, and then, boom, they let us down, sometimes in spectacularly horrible ways, sometimes in smaller private ways, but either way, they let us down and they fail, which leaves us asking, when is it going to be the year when are we finally going to have somebody who can save us? Well, Genesis, it doesn't provide the answer, but it does provide the pattern so that when the answer comes, when the real and true answer shows up, we recognize him instantly. And that's why this matters. That's why we've dedicated the summer to walking through the, the book of Genesis and looking at this stuff, is that when the answer comes, I want my heart and your heart when we see him, to recognize him immediately and say, yes, he's here. He's the one. And so uh, I do hate to break it to you today. We are still in Genesis, so you are not going to get the, the deliverer in this passage about Abraham and Isaac. I know it's a big letdown for y'all. You were hoping it was going to be Abraham. It's not. I'm so sorry. But we do still get to see something pretty incredible today. In these chapters, we will see what, for, for my money, I think, is maybe one of the clearest pictures in the entire Bible of how God has chosen to save his people, of, of how he's chosen to provide a way forward. So we don't get the who in the passage today, but we do get the how. How is God going to create a way for his people? And now, 
Listen, if, if you've been around church for any length of time, if you've, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, or even if you've just been attending church, figuring it out for a while, you've probably heard the story of Abraham and Isaac a lot. I mean, after all, it is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. And listen, I'm, I'm thrilled. If that's you, that is awesome. I'm thrilled that you know the story. I'm thrilled that you've heard it before. But I do want to ask a favor. I do want to ask a favor before we jump in. Sometimes when we hear these famous Bible stories over and over again, it's easy for them to lose some of their bite. It's easy for us to kind of let ourselves off the hook a little bit and maybe miss what God is trying to show us or teach us in this passage. I don't know about you, but for me, just to confess, it's really easy sometimes when I hear sermons about a passage I know really well to be like, oh, Yep, Abraham and Isaac. The answer is actually Jesus. It's great. He's awesome. Cool. Next, let's go to brunch. Let's get out of here. Shoot off some fireworks. We're good to go. And and maybe that's just me, but maybe that's where you're at too. And so I just want to challenge you a little bit. I want to challenge you just a little bit to maybe take off your your Christian brain for a second and do our best to together approach this story with fresh eyes. And if we're able to do that, I think we might be surprised to see what God teaches us today today if we're able to approach the passage on its own terms, its own context with where it was written, when it was written, I do think God has something really, really beautiful to say to us today. So pray with me and we'll jump in and go for it. Lord, you are incredible. God, you are incredible that, that even though we fail again and again and again, that you love us and you provide a way to save us, God, that you never abandon us to our sin, but you call us back into relationship with you. Lord, you are amazing. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you love us. God, we ask that you would be with us in this moment. Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you illuminate this text? Would you open our hearts to what you have to say to us today? Spirit, we want to look more like Jesus. We want to be a church and a people who look more like Jesus. Spirit, would you accomplish that today? Would you let us love you more, Father? Would you let us follow you more, Jesus? Jesus, would you move even in this moment? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to cover both chapter 21 and 22 of Genesis, which is, uh, it's a ton. It's a ton. Honestly, this could be like four or five or six sermons. Even these chapters are rich and they're dense and they are complex. But well, we have a lot of ground to cover today, but we're not going to do all of it because I do, in fact, want to celebrate 4th of July with my family at some point. And if we got through, if we looked at everything in this chapter, we would just never get there. And so, so today we're not going to do everything, but we are going to look at these three points. The three points we're going to look at and explore today are the context of the story, the call of Abraham, and the compassion of God. We're going to look at the context of the story, where it was written, how it was written, what's, what's the setup around it, the context. We're going to look at the call that God gives to Abraham, and then we're going to look at the miraculous, wonderful, incredible compassion of God. But first, let's look at the context which for our purposes today is primarily Genesis 21. So you can look over Genesis 21 if you like. Uh, now we're not going to read all of it. We're not going to read all of it. It's a longer chapter. Uh, but Genesis 21, it spans three different sub-stories, if you will. Three different sub-stories in that chapter, each of them setting the stage in their own way for what God is doing. Right? They, they, when you look at them at first, they feel kind of random, but they're not. They're actually all pointing to what God is doing. So you can think of them, in our case here, like hors d'oeuvres before a really good meal, right? So a good hors d'oeuvre, what it's supposed to do is whet your appetite, 
Right, so get you ready for the, the, the main course. Uh, Megan and I, we actually had our ninth anniversary on Thursday. It was awesome. We went to a way too fancy restaurant, and it was incredible. But uh, each entree that you ordered there, it was paired with, unbeknownst to you, uh, a little uh, appetizer hors d'oeuvre to kind of get you ready for the flavors that you were going to experience. And it was completely lost on me, right? I'm just a student's guy. Uh, the food was great. I highly recommend it. Uh, but I wasn't sure what was going on there. But, but that's what a good hors d'oeuvre does, right? It wets your palate. If you're a foodie, you may understand better than I do what I'm saying, even in this moment. But that's what it does. And, and that's what these stories are supposed to do. They're supposed to get you thinking in the pattern so that when we get to Abraham and Isaac, your heart's ready. Your heart's ready. And so those, though these stories are distinct, what they're all trying to tell you is this. God remains faithful. God remains faithful. That's what the writer wants you to know before you look at Abraham and Isaac, that God is faithful. Through confusion, through human sin, through everything, God is faithful. So let's briefly run through each of these stories so you can see where I get that idea from, and then we'll jump into Abraham and Isaac. So the first story we see in chapter 21, it's this, it's the birth of Isaac. Now, if you recall... If you recall, if you're familiar with the story, Abraham and Sarah, they they couldn't have kids, right? They were barren. And in that day, that's that's a really immense struggle. So they're barren, but God promises them an heir, an heir who would ultimately grow to be a great nation and, in fact, bless the entire world. It's a huge promise. It's an incredible promise. And now, in this chapter, the son of the promise, he's here. In verse 1, it, it sums it up beautifully, and it's actually one of my more favorite verses in the Bible. I, I think it's so incredible. Look at, look, look at it with me. Uh, verse 1 says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. What a God. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. He, he, he showed up just like he said he was going to show up, and he did just exactly what he said he was going to do. It wasn't in Sarah's timing, maybe. It wasn't how Sarah and Abraham had mapped out their life when they were planning it. But God showed up faithfully in his timing like he always does. That's the God of Abraham, and that's the God that we serve today. And honestly, I could stop right there. We could just stop right there, say, look how amazing God is. What a faithful, incredible God we have. Worship band, come on up. Let's go. But the story doesn't end there, and so we'll continue on. And if you know the story of Abraham, you know that though God is immensely faithful, he's always faithful, Abraham and Sarah, they weren't. They weren't. Uh, The second brief story we see in chapter 21, it it demonstrates God's faithfulness in a different way, in in how God deals with Abraham's other son, Ishmael. And now, now again, we don't have time to get into all the details of the story. I, I wish we could. It is heartbreaking and complex and rich and immense. But if you're unfamiliar with it, we see that God promised Abraham an offspring who would carry on his family line. But Abraham and Sarah, they get tired of waiting. They get tired of waiting. They start to question, is God really going to do what he said he's going to do? Is God really going to be faithful? It feels like it's been a long time. Is God really going to show up and do what he promised to do? And so they take matters into their own hands. Sarah, she she takes her servant Hagar and she gives her to Abraham. Not only is this a hideously dehumanizing and abusive act towards Hagar, and and it is. It also shows us that Abraham and Sarah, they're they're trying to rely on their own strength, their own cunning to, to create a family. Instead of waiting on God, they were willing. They're willing to hurt 
whoever it was around them, to get what they want. And it's easy to look at Abraham and Sarah in this moment and say, oh, how wicked, how terrible, how, how horrible it would be that you would do such a thing. And that reaction is not wrong. It is immensely wicked, their behavior here. But that's what sin does, right? That's what sin is, isn't it? That's what my sin looks like. That's how it works for me and friend, it's for you too. That we don't trust that God is going to provide the thing that we want. We don't really trust that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And so we take matters into our own hands. We go out, we take what we want, and we push aside other image bearers in the process. We say, I want that thing. And God hasn't given it to me yet. So I'm going to do what it takes to go and get it. Church, we are all. Abraham and Sarah sometimes. The call today in this moment is to repent. To repent the ways that you've reached out and you've taken what you've wanted and you've not trusted God to be good and to provide. It's for me to repent. It's for you as well. I want to pause here for a second too. We don't often talk about Abraham and Sarah that way. At least I haven't heard it talked about a ton. About how they abused their power to hurt Hagar. And though we have to keep going with the story, this isn't a thing I want to rush through. I'll take a moment, talk about it. If you're here and you've been hurt by somebody, somebody's used their power against you and, and wounded you or manipulated you or hurt you, I just want to say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's not supposed to be that way. This world isn't supposed to be that way. I'm so sorry. And as your church, we love you. We love you. We are for you. We want to hear you and believe you and listen to you and fight for you. And the reason we want to do all that, it's not because we're some incredible church. It's because that is how God responds to hurting people every single time. That is how God responds to Hagar in the midst of what had to be an incredibly dark, incredibly painful moment. We see that God didn't forget her. And he hasn't forgotten you either, if that's where you find yourself today. So back to the story, we see that through Abraham and Sarah's scheme, Hagar has a son, a son named Ishmael. But now that Isaac is on the scene, that's causing some problems. There's some friction in the family. You see, Sarah didn't want Ishmael competing with Isaac, and so she wants to send him out into the desert. Good luck with you. Now, Abraham, he's torn. He, he doesn't want to send him away, but he doesn't want to say no. He's confused. He's not sure what to do. And this family, it's, it's collapsing in real terms. It is collapsing in that moment. But in the middle of the mess created by their sin, God shows up again, gracious and merciful like he always is. So we see that God demonstrates his faithfulness in the birth of Isaac, and now we see he remains faithful even in the midst of brokenness, to Hagar and to Ishmael, God provides both the son of the promise, like he said he was going to do, and miraculously blesses and protects and cares for Hagar and her son. Once again, church, God is faithful. He's faithful. And now we get to the last story of chapter 21, and it's Abraham's treaty with Abimelech. And this one can sort of feel out of place. It's like a political dealing moment, not a family drama, but it actually is in some sense. If you looked at chapter 20, you'd see that Abimelech is one of the guys that Abraham lied to about the identity of his wife, Sarah. Abraham, 
he, he's afraid that Abimelech will use his power and take Sarah from him. And so he lies and says, hey, Sarah's my sister. She's not my wife. So Abimelech does take her, but God intervenes, miraculously protects her, and miraculously restores her back to her husband. But so when you see Abimelech show up, it's natural to think, hey, this is not going to go well. This has not been a relationship that has started off on the best footing. This relationship is another mess created by Abraham's own design. But in this situation, we see peace. We see peace almost shockingly. They, they make a covenant with one another. They work together. There's a dispute about a well, which is a big deal back then in the desert. But they sort of settle it just fine. Things are great. Things are like, strangely great. They're working together. They leave on good terms. Uh, this story, it even ends with an echo of Eden. Right, so looking at patterns and things that call our mind back, this story ends with an echo of Eden. Look with me at verse 33. It says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Abraham communes in this moment with God under a tree that he planted. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? It's to say, oh, that's the Garden of Eden. That's the Garden of Eden. So he's shooting off alarm bells in your mind, conjuring up your memory of Eden. Things, they're good. They're good. But this verse, it also should put up a little bit of a red flag in your mind because you know, because you observe patterns, you know that when things are good, the next thing that comes is the test. And the test is coming. Which takes us to chapter 22 where we see the call of Abraham. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22, they say this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The test is here. And this call God gave Abraham, it's actually surprisingly similar to the original call that God gave Abraham when he's first introduced in the Bible. So when Abraham's original call, it was to leave his home, leave his people, and go to a place that God will tell him about later. And in this passage, we see that here he's called to go faithfully to a mountain that God will show him when he gets there, really. Abraham originally is called to leave his family, his society, his status, his influence, his wealth. And here, he's called to sacrifice his son that would secure his family, all of those things in society. And while Abraham's original call was hard, this call, it's horrifying, isn't it? It's bone chilling, this call. God calls Abraham to give up his son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Just think about it for a second. Put yourself in those shoes. Ishmael is gone. Isaac is Abraham's only son left. Isaac is Abraham's social hope for the future. He's his future security. He's Abraham's emotional heartbeat. He's the son whom he loves. Isaac is also the son of the promise. The son that Abraham has prayed for and longed for and waited for for years and years. And he's here. The son that God said he would use to bless the world. God is asking for no less, for no less than every source of finite security and significance that Abraham has. And Abraham goes. Abraham gets up and he goes. Just put yourself in those shoes. What are you thinking in that moment? When you hear that call, what are you thinking? And maybe it's your kids. 
Maybe you don't have kids, but think for a moment, what do you put your hope in? Is it your job? Is it your money? Is it your looks or your status or your relationship? What comes to mind when you hear the question, and what, what foundation do I have? What comes to your mind when you think to yourself, as long as I have this thing, I'll be good. I'll be good. Is there something in your life today that if God demanded it from you, you'd say, no, Lord, Lord, take anything else. Take anything else. Don't take this thing. Don't take this thing, God. And if there is, or we're building our life, we have to know, are we building our life on anything, on anything else that's not God? And we have to know because church, eventually the call to give up that thing, it's coming. Inevitably, if your life is built on something that's not God, that call to give it up is coming. And when it does, when that thing fails you, when that thing lets you down, in that moment, God is saying, listen to the call. Listen to the call. Your heart is telling you, you need this thing to be significant. You need this thing to be important. You need this thing to be secure. But all you really need is me, God is saying to you. Church, are you ready to obey the call? Are you ready to give that thing up and say, God, you alone are worth it. You alone are my foundation. And friends, as scary and as hard as that idea is, it is scary and it is hard. There's actually another layer to this call that that we have to understand today. Like I'm here, I'm here for unconditional obedience. I love the idea that you'd walk out of here saying, I just need to obey God. I just need to obey God and yes, Obey God in whatever he calls you to do, absolutely. But usually, at least in my experience, that's where we stop with this passage. Usually we stop with this idea that God gave Abraham some outrageous call that he didn't really mean, and he might give you an outrageous call. You just go and do it, and it's going to be great. And that's, that's not bad. That's a great place to end. That's a great thing to think. But, but I think if we stop there, we miss the deeper point. And I think, if I could be so bold, All of us sort of intuitively understand that when we read this passage. If you're like me, just be vulnerable for a second, this passage can be a real struggle to read. This passage can be a real struggle to understand because it feels wrong, doesn't it? It feels feels dirty. It feels broken. It feels messed up that that God, the God that we love and sing to, would order a man to kill his son. Like there's a problem there. that feels wrong. Does that resonate with you? Maybe it's just me, but sometimes this story can be really difficult to read and to understand. And so obviously, obviously our, our takeaway can't be, well, God called Abraham to murder his son, so maybe he calls me to murder my son. Like we can't just stop there at this, like whatever happens, I'll just say yes. Because yes, unconditionally obey God, absolutely. But we can't just stop there. There's a tension that we all feel and the Bible is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. When you feel tension, it's God inviting you deeper into what his word says. And so the tension that we feel about this story, it's because it's easy for us thousands of years ago, thousands of years later, to miss the context of what's going on here. God doesn't tell Abraham to murder Isaac. He doesn't. He doesn't tell him to stab him in the tent. He calls him to give Isaac up as an offering. Do you want to know the true horror of the call today? Do you want to understand what truly makes this call terrifying? If we do, if we want to really know, then we have to understand the meaning of the firstborn. 
And so we have trouble understanding this context here because we are a wildly individualistic society. I mean, it's 4th of July weekend, where we celebrate our independence, and it's good. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But, but in that time, in that culture, it didn't operate that way. They were, they were collective. They were communal. And in Abraham's time, the firstborn was the hope of the entire family. They got all the inheritance. They carried on the family name. They gave, they gave their people hope for the future that, that they'd be provided for. And we see in Scripture over and over again that God says the life of the firstborn is mine. Think about the sacrifices. God asks for the firstborn of the livestock to be sacrificed to him. God asks for the first fruits of your harvest to be given up to him. Recall, if you will, Passover. Right? The Passover story, God says, all of your firstborn, they will perish if the lamb isn't slain to protect them and to buy them back. And we don't have time to look at all these, but you're welcome to. In Exodus 22, in Numbers 3, in Numbers 8, over and over again, we see God say to his people, your firstborn belongs to me unless they're redeemed back. Immediately, your firstborn belong to me unless you redeem them back. Well, what is going on here? What's, what's, what's happening? What's God trying to communicate here? What Abraham and Israel understood and what we need to see is this. This is God's way of saying in the Old Testament, every family owes a debt of sin. Every family owes a debt of sin. I read this Tim Keller quote as I was researching for this sermon, and it really helped this idea click in my head. He explains it, he explains it like this. He says, the ancients understood that when God says the life of the firstborn is forfeit, it means there's a debt of sin that every family owes to God. If this command, this command to sacrifice Isaac, if this command makes no sense to you, it did make sense to Abraham. If he was commanded to kill Sarah, he never would have done it. And God never would have said it. But God said, offer up your firstborn. And Abraham understood that there was a debt owed and that God was calling it in. In that society, this talk about the firstborn is God's way of saying no one is righteous. No. Not one, not one. So it's not just that God was calling Abraham to offer up his son as if that wasn't enough. It's that Abraham also knew God was just in doing it. That Abraham was sinful. Look at all these chapters. Abraham knew that he was sinful and that God was just in that moment to demand payment. There was a debt Abraham owed and it was getting called in. That's the real, the real terror of this call. That the justice of God in this moment, is coming in direct conflict with the promise of God. The question this story should make you ask and should make me ask is this, how can a God of command be a God of promise? It's the question Abraham had to be asking himself, right? He's walking three days next to his son, knowing where he's going. He had to be asking this question, how can the God who can call in my debt of sin also be the God who says that, that he's going to bless the world through Isaac? And all these questions, they boil down to this one. How can a holy God be gracious and a gracious God still be holy? And isn't that the same question we ask ourselves when we fall, when we fail? when we look ourselves in the mirror after committing that sin again and again, don't we ask ourselves, God, how can you love me? How can you be kind and still be holy? How can you be merciful and still be just? 
the lamb. The lamb, the, the, the miraculous compassion of God made flesh. The answer, friends, today is the lamb. Verses seven and eight, Isaac looks to Abraham and he says, my father, behold the, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He looks at Isaac and he says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, Isaac. I don't know how it's all going to play out. I don't know how God's going to bless the world through you and how he's still calling me to sacrifice you. I don't know. But God is going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it, Isaac, but God will provide. And what Abraham didn't know, we know. What Abraham could only guess at, we get the joy. We get the joy and privilege from where we sit to see it clearly. God provides a ram that day, right? A ram that day to save Isaac's life. And it is miraculous and it is beautiful and it is wonderful and we should celebrate. But we also know, we also know what the Bible says later. The blood of bulls and goats, it it can't fully atone. The ram did its job that day, but the ram, it, it didn't count for tomorrow, The mountains of Moriah, we learn later on, the mountains that that God called Abraham to, those are the mountains around Jerusalem. So why did Abraham not have to kill Isaac? Why do we not have to pay the debt that we owe God? It's because centuries later, God the Father led his perfect son up into those same mountains. And this time there was no substitute. When Jesus cried out, There was no other ram to be found. Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was sacrificed for you and for me and for Isaac that day on the cross. God's justice and God's mercy married together in one perfect moment. That's the answer. That's the answer. That's how a just God can still be merciful and a merciful God still be just. God didn't ignore our sin. Our sin is too great. It's too offensive. His justice would never allow it. We owed a debt. We all owe a debt. And that debt was due, but God also knew. He also knew that the weight of our sin, it would crush us. That left to our devices, you and me, we are never making it back to God. We are never able to restore ourselves to right relationship for him. So he sent his perfect son, Jesus, to be our sacrificial lamb, to die that day on a cross in the mountains of Moriah, in our place, in my place, in your place, so we can once and for all time be restored back to him. That is our hope today. That is our security today. That is our identity today. That is. That, friends, is our snake-crushing hero promised in Genesis 3 and foreshadowed again and again and again in Genesis. And we understand that when we understand that, the miraculous power of the cross, then you can go. Then we can go, like Abraham, to a place that we don't know yet. Then we can set out and say, God, if you've called me, I'm ready to go. We can sacrifice anything. And everything, because we look at the cross. When we look at the cross, we can say, without a doubt, Lord, you love me. Without a doubt, Lord, you are good. Without a doubt, Lord, you'll provide for me. Without a doubt, Lord, you have paid my debt forever. So that's the call. That's the call. We are called, you and I, to live our lives every day with this idea right here in front of us. That we're not enslaved to our sin anymore. 
We're not enslaved to our self-interest anymore. We don't have to go out and like Sarah and Abraham, take ours and get ours. We don't have to provide significance for ourselves or security for ourselves anymore. The lamb has already done it. Praise the lamb. Praise the lamb. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, he says, therefore, in light of that fact, in light of how great the lamb is, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The only way we can truly and properly worship the Lord, the only way we can really give our lives as holy living sacrifices is by first looking to the one who sacrificed his life for us. So church, in view of that, in view of God's immense mercy to you today, what is he calling you to do? Where is he calling you to go today? What is he calling you to give up today that you might more faithfully follow that God that we serve? What area of your life is he saying, hey, you don't need to carry that burden anymore. I paid for it. I paid for it. You can put it down. Hey, you don't need to rely on that thing to keep you safe anymore or provide significance anymore. You don't need it. You don't need it. I've already purchased that for you. Church, what is it? What is it? We are called to offer it all, to offer our very lives as holy and living sacrifices to God, not because like Abraham, we still had a debt of sin that we owed, but because our glorious King Jesus, the compassionate Lamb of God, he paid that debt instead. That's the call of Genesis 22. That's the God of Abraham, and that's the God that we serve today. Oh, church, praise the Lamb. Look at all the Lamb has done for you today. Praise Him. What a God we serve. Pray with me today. Let's thank Him together. Jesus, it is overwhelming how kind you are. It is overwhelming how merciful you are that you would look at people like us and see all of our darkness, all of our sin, and yet still run towards us, run towards us to die. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We praise you for that today and tomorrow and for all of eternity because Jesus, you are worth it. You are worth it. You are the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And it is our joy to follow you. It is our joy to offer you everything. It is our joy to praise you with our lives. Jesus, would you help us? Would you empower us? We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.